If you're like me, you care about getting the most from your workouts, which means wearing the finest performance gear. You know, fabric that dries quickly and has superior moisture wicking properties. Fabric so soft and comfortable, you could, well, curl up and sleep in it. Introducing Sheeks, spelled S-H-E-E-X, the world's first performance bedding line. Sheeks began when two former elite athletes and coaches had an aha moment, combining everything we love about quality performance fabric with everything we love about comfortable, irresistible bedding. Unlike traditional sheets that trap heat, sheets are breathable, so you aren't constantly waking up to throw off covers or add a blanket. So you sleep deeper, longer, and better. And sheets bedding looks as good as it feels. Colors and styles that can match any decor at a price that will pleasantly surprise you. And right now, you can try sheets for 30 nights risk-free. Just go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com, promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com, 1212. This is the World According to Zig podcast for this March 31st, 2019. My name is John Ziegler. I'm the host of the show where you can still get the truth about the news of the day from a conservative perspective in this world turned upside down. Our website is freespeechbroadcasting.com. That's where you can check out all the past episodes of The World According to Zig podcast, as well as you can find a link to the Individual One podcast, which we've been doing for the last couple of months. That's where we focus exclusively on the presidency of Donald Trump. So if you're fixing for some analysis on Donald Trump, that's where you should go. Although I will in this hour of the World According to Zig podcast be talking about the apparent demise or the impending demise of Joe Biden, who I believe to be by far the best chance uh, for Democrats to defeat Donald Trump in 2020. So that's on the agenda for the World According to Zig podcast. Uh, But lots of other things to talk about first. Uh, This week was my 52nd birthday, which is not significant because it's about as as insignificant a birthday as you could possibly have, except for the fact that, uh, one, uh, my wife and children did a very nice job of making it a special day, and it was a great day, and thank you, everybody, for your well wishes. One of the unfortunate elements of social media, it's either fortunate or unfortunate, depending on your perspective, is that you now spend much of your birthday, if you have a lot of followers on Twitter and Facebook, you now spend much of your birthday thanking people who you don't even know for their birthday wishes. <laughs> I must have gotten five or 600 people, and this happens every birthday. And I, again, it's appreciated. I understand it's well-intentioned, but it's kind of a pain in the ass. And you're, you're faced with this impossible situation where you're damned if you do, damned if you don't. If you respond, like I always do, you're spending much of your birthday <laughs> responding, thanks very much, thanks for the wishes, blah, 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 at least liking on the birthday wishes. Uh, and then, of course, you have to make the decision of, okay, is this person worthy of a personal response or just a like, <laughs> which I also hate. So, um, but anyway. That's an aside. Uh, It was a nice birthday, but the main reason I'm mentioning the birthday is that it was almost a complete disaster because of something that happened the night before my birthday. And that is that we had an almost tragedy in the Ziegler household. And this is a weird story in that it really toes the line between tragedy and comedy about as well as any story possibly could. It, It is currently a comedy, but it easily could have been 
a horrible tragedy. So the night before my birthday, uh, the Ziegler family, as we are wont to do, all went out to the uh, the playground across the street from our house uh, with me, my wife, uh, six-year-old Grace. You remember Grace Ziegler, of course. I am the leader. Do as I say. Right. Uh, that she's also the person who said about Trump. Is Trump a bad guy or a good guy? That, that was this was years ago. She's now almost seven years old, and our almost two-year-old uh, daughter Diana. We're all out at the playground. And Grace um, likes to do things that are a little bit uh, different. She has quite a vivid imagination. She's been on this show many times. If you've heard her, you're probably aware of this. She sometimes lives in her own little world of imagination, as, as kids like that often uh, do. And for some reason, she had brought a scarf, this really long, dark blue, thin uh, scarf with her. And she has this block, for some reason, on the monkey bars. She does not do the monkey bars. She's more than capable physically at this point of doing the monkey bars. But for some reason, she got a block. You know, she's her, she's her mother's daughter, and her mother gets blocks on a lot of things. And once she gets a block, forget about it. It's over. So I've, I've learned long ago, don't even try. And she has a block on the monkey bars for some reason. So she won't do the monkey bars. So she was, instead, she was tying this scarf to one of the monkey bars and using it kind of like uh, Tarzan, you know, like you would take uh, the rope and you jump off uh, the part of the jungle gym. And it wasn't really working very well because she's too tall. <laughs> she's, she's a fairly tall, almost seven-year-old. So this really wasn't uh, providing her with what she imagined that it would do. So... There's a whole bunch. My, my wife is on the, her uh, cell phone. I'm pushing Diana on the swing. There are a couple other people in the jungle gym. And uh, completely without our knowledge, Grace gets this brilliant idea. I can't even believe that she did this. She gets this brilliant idea to take the scarf, part of which is one end is tied to the, the monkey bars. She takes the other end of the scarf and she ties it around her neck. She ties it around her neck, and then, I have no idea why she did this, she decides to jump off the, monk, the jungle gym as if she's doing the Tarzan thing. Well, you can imagine what happens. She effectively hangs herself. And thank goodness there was a mom that was standing right there and saw the whole thing. And it, this, didn't, this probably didn't take more than two seconds, this whole episode, where she uh, picks her up because she's almost hanging there. She's basically hanging there from the from the uh, monkey bars, picks her up, puts her back on the, the jungle gym portion. Grace, of course, is screaming bloody murder. I mean, which is actually a good thing because she's able to scream. Uh, but she is screaming, I mean, to the point where I thought people in the neighborhood were going to start calling the police. I mean, it was, it was that horrendous and awful. And... At first, I didn't really take it that seriously. I thought, oh, my God, what a stupid, moronic thing to do. Uh, but then, because clearly she's screaming. She's clearly okay. She's going to get over the fright. But then we took a look at her neck, and it was horrendous. I mean, her, her in almost the entire front of her neck looked literally as if she had been hanged and uh, had this, I guess you would call it a rope burn, uh, right across the neck that was very dark and very uh, very obvious. 
And, of course, she got a, a huge uh, fright out of the whole thing, which which was good. That's actually good because we don't want you doing that again, moron. Uh, but, but also, this is where the, the comedy part of this <laughs> comes in. Once we realize that she's going to be okay and we get over the uh, horrendousness of what might have happened, uh, we're, we're trying to figure out, okay, how do we handle this? Because we know that she's going to go to school the next day, and guess what's going to happen? The school is going to uh, start asking questions <laughs> about what the hell is going on at the Ziegler house with this horrible mark around her neck, like she, you know, like she's John Bonet Ramsey or something. And, uh, and so uh, we actually urge my, my wife, because she's a school teacher, knows how this drill works, we actually made sure that Grace knew to be prepared that if they ask you what happened, don't make up a story. Just tell them what happened because we could totally see Grace like concocting this imaginary tale, partially because she was embarrassed about what happened and partially because that's the way Grace's mind works. So sure enough, the next day we get a phone call from school. <laughs> And uh, and it's basically you know they have no choice. In fact, I'm glad they're calling. I'm you know I'm glad that they're they're keeping an eye on this kind of thing. But of course, you know what are we supposed to say? And we're not even 100 percent sure what the hell Grace told them. Because <laughs> again, it's Grace. So you know we're we're forced to tell this, or my wife is forced to tell this. Sounds like a cockamamie story, where our daughter tried to hang herself by accident <laughs> in the, uh, the the local playground. Thankfully, that's exactly what Grace had told them. <laughs> so, so at least uh, you know, child protective services were not called to our house. But you know, my wife and I, as we were talking about this, it occurred to us that you know this could really have turned into something. Forgetting about the the part where Grace could have been very badly injured—that's that's a separate issue. But we, we thought about circumstances where something like this easily could have turned into a massive uh, controversy way beyond just her injury. Like, for instance, and this was, I was not thrilled that my wife's mind immediately went here, but it's, it's, uh, in, you know, it's a good point. She said, what if you and I were getting a divorce and we were involved in a custody battle at this point? And what if only one of us had been there, right? The other of us could have easily used this injury, made up a story about how it happened, and used it for the purposes of trying to win a custody battle or to make the other person look bad or to try to effectively set them up. And who's, you know, as, as long as Grace went along with it, what would stop anybody from doing that? And it, it really did kind of hit me like, oh, Geez, it's amazing how easily something like this, especially with children, and because, understandably so, people's minds tend to explode when there's any kind of uh, allegation of theoretical abuse against a child. I get it. Totally understand it. But it does illustrate just how dangerous these kind of situations can be, even beyond the uh, initial injury, which, thankfully, was not that bad, is going to heal just fine, and was probably actually the, the the right kind of injury for grace to get because it will set home a lesson and a message that this kind of stupidity should not happen again without there any being any real permanent damage but it was definitely a real scare in the ziggler family and uh, something to be thankful for on my birthday that grace did not manage to actually hang herself to the point of major permanent injury 
All right, uh, now now on to the news uh, of the week, and there's been a lot of it. Obviously, a lot of people contacted me about my opinions on the Jussie Smollett situation because, for whatever reason, a lot of people gave me credit, although I didn't deserve it, for being one of the first people in the media to have the balls to come forward and say this whole Jussie Smollett story is bullshit, which, of course, it turned out to be bullshit. Anybody could see that it was bullshit. It was obvious bullshit right from the beginning. I'm just one of those people that doesn't care. So I'll, you know, I'll call out bullshit when I see it, and I have a, a platform to be able to do that uh, at Mediate. So, ironically enough, while it's utterly outrageous that Jesse Smollett is not going to face any charges for faking a hate crime and you know lying about what happened to him, implicating people who were innocent, costing the Chicago police enormous amounts of man hours and resources. Not to mention trying to take advantage of hate crime laws in a very deceitful fashion, all for his own benefit. That's horrendous. That's horrendous. It's outrageous. In a weird way, I wasn't, I wasn't that upset about it. I don't know why. Maybe it's because everybody else was getting upset about it. So I thought, okay, that's cool. I mean, you know, everyone should be upset about this. And so therefore... When even the Democratic mayor of Chicago, Rahm Emanuel, who sounded like a Republican presidential candidate in his in his uh, press conference condemning Jesse Smollett, he frankly sounded more Republican sometimes than Trump does, I, I felt like, okay, all the right people are pissed off. The Democratic mayor is pissed off. The black police commissioner is pissed off. Uh, the only part of this that that I still was irritated by was that Smollett was still allowed somehow to claim his innocence that, that you know if, if he was if they were just going to say you know what um he has the right uh, political connections and you know there's some connection to michelle obama and her former chief of staff and this is just sh corrupt chicago politics and the state's attorney is in the bag by the way for the record i doubt very many people remember this i had been told this about the state's attorney way back at the beginning of the story when i first went on glenn beck's show i think he asked me something like well what do you think is going to happen here and I said, I think the story will fall apart, but I'm not sure that he'll ever face any major legal ramifications for this because of the corrupt state's attorney's office. Well, that's exactly what it turned out happening, and it appears as if this was as corrupt a decision as it gets. They've come up with all sorts of BS explanations for why they did it, but the part that he's still going to be able to plausibly claim his innocence and have his lawyers say that the Nigerians were wearing white face while they were committing this attack at 2 a.m. By the way, these guys were so black, I'm not sure whiteface would have made any difference. <laughs> it still would have looked like black guys. But the point, the point of this is that that's the part that irritates me. And apparently he's not even going to lose his job on Empire. Uh, and so that, that, was, that was irritating. Um, but even then, you know, I've got, got to hand it to Chris Rock. Because Chris, Chris Rock... Uh, on the uh, NAACP Image Awards last night, he took a little bit of a chance, and, and he gave it to Jussie Smollett. He did it in, in a way that was very smart. You know, he, he said, you know, something to the effect of, uh, Jussie, what, what the heck were you thinking? Making it clear that he didn't buy the story. And he also said that, you know, I'm not going to call you Jussie anymore. You're just now Jesse because you don't get my respect. And so that was a great way for Chris Rock to get across the message that Jesse that Smollett is full of shit without him actually having to say that he lied and that uh, Jesse should be 
you know, somehow put in jail or something. So he got to be, I think that was a very crafty way that Chris Rock did this to send the message as a black performer that this was not okay and that Jesse is full of crap um, without getting himself in any real big trouble. And he did so, obviously, in a venue that is as black, about as black as you can get, the NAACP uh, Image Awards. So kudos for Chris Rock for having at least one testicle to, to do that. Um, but, you know, we're just living in such an unjust world now. I just presume, I presume that any high-profile situation that involves the criminal justice system where the media is a major factor, where politics are a major factor, is going to end up unjust. There's going to be something that goes wrong. It's almost impossible for it not to turn out that way. Why? Because our news media is totally broken. Our politics is totally broken. Our criminal justice system is totally broken. And when you inject uh, media and politics into the criminal justice system, the outcome cannot be as it should be. It's almost impossible. The only case I can even think of in recent memory that comes close to being just when all those factors were at play were the Brett Kavanaugh hearings. And that happened by the skin of Brett Kavanaugh's teeth he got through when I believe he was innocent of those allegations. But that only happened because Donald Trump stood by him and he got incredibly lucky and he, he basically won effectively by one vote. Even though technically it wasn't that. It was, I think, two votes in the end. But if, uh, if uh, Snow had not voted for him, Senator Snow, then he would have been torpedoed. And, uh, and that's how close it came. So it, it is, I now just presume, if it's a high-profile case with a lot of media and politics involved, the end is not going to be what you want. And at least people recognize that here. I mean, he's going to be kind of like a mini O.J. Simpson where everyone knows he's guilty. I don't know whether or not he's going to spend the rest of his life devoted to finding the real MAGA hat-wearing attackers, like O.J. claimed that he would after he got acquitted. But it's a very similar situation. And in the long run, maybe I'm delusionally optimistic. In the long run, I actually think this might be worse for Jesse Smollett. Because if he had done his time, then there would have been a forgiveness by a certain percentage of the population. Now that ain't going to happen. Although we're living in such a fragmented world that he may only need to appeal to a certain small percentage of the audience as some sort of bizarre hero, and that might be lucrative enough for him. He'll never be a mainstream star, you wouldn't think, although Fox has stood by him in a way that is baffling to me. But that's the nature of micro-casting, narrow-casting. There's no more broadcasting. It's all narrow casting. You just appeal to that very, very narrow demographic, and you'll be fine. This is kind of the Trumpification of our culture. Trump only knows he only needs to appeal to his cult, which is not that narrow in terms of the whole population, but it's not anywhere near 50% of the population. And as long as they stay with you, you're fine. That's why you never apologize. And in Jesse Smollett's case, you don't even acknowledge reality. Forget about apology. You just pretend you're innocent. Reality and facts don't matter. So that's where I am on uh, the Jesse Smollett situation. And speaking of uh, obvious scams, that gets me to our latest update on the Leaving Neverland movie from HBO, which I have been immersed in for the last several weeks, never anticipating that that would be the case. But through a bizarre series of circumstances, I have been. And 
I have to say that it's amazing how many things have occurred since HBO uh, broadcast that movie. I don't call it a documentary because it's not. It's clearly not. It's a, a work of fiction. And this week is no exception. Uh, in last week's podcast, I mentioned that something has to be up with Oprah Winfrey that Oprah Winfrey has to be part of what's really going on here, that the reason why Oprah was brought in to do an hour, quote-unquote, post-game show, as I called it, for this, this uh, movie involving uh, two allegations of sex abuse against Michael Jackson uh, made by James Safechuck and Wade Robson, the reason why Oprah was brought in is that they knew they needed a heavy hitter. They knew they needed some media protection. They needed to uh, effectively ha give have her give her blessing as a sex abuse victim who's a media darling to Safe Chuck and Robson because if that didn't happen, I think they were smart enough to realize they were going to get destroyed. They were going to get destroyed not just because Michael Jackson has a huge, huge worldwide fan base, but because the facts weren't on their side. And the only way that they could survive this is if the media was afraid to attack the movie. They could not survive an onslaught from a factual standpoint because the story is, is ridiculous and contradicted in many, 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 many ways. Legally, logically, every which way. It just doesn't hold water. So the only way you survive that kind of situation is if everyone is afraid to attack you. And if Oprah is on board, then no one will attack you, at least not in the American media, because she is untouchable. And once you have her blessing, you have a halo on. You have a force field. And with that kind of force field protection, especially on the issue of child sex abuse, nobody in the American media, especially me, post Me Too, is going to have the balls, except maybe John Sickler and a couple other people, to say, hold on a second, this is bull crap. No one is going to do that. And I theorized last week that there had to have been some sort of a quid pro quo here. Not like in a conspiratorial way. That's not the way the real world works. But, you know, Oprah Winfrey was shown this movie on her birthday on David Geffen's yacht. This is a matter of public record. They tweeted about it. And then, of course, she becomes a huge part of holding this whole thing together. Well, I said last week, some project is going to come forward with Oprah that's involved with this. Something She's going to get something out of this. Well, this week it was announced that she's going to be doing two documentary series for Apple in conjunction with Steven Spielberg. Well, who is Steven Spielberg's partner? David Geffen. David Geffen is also a huge shareholder in Apple. Now, none of this proves anything, but it's about as close as you're going to get to, aha, bum, 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 now we understand. And, the, you know, the Jackson family, very early on when I was speaking to them, they were incensed about Oprah, but they were also very skeptical about what was really going on here politically, that they felt like this was a political hit job. Now, that's against my DNA to presume that, but I'm starting to think that there's something to that. Again, not in a real dark uh, conspiratorial way, just in a you scratch my back, I'll scratch your sort of way. And since Michael Jackson is dead, no one feels like he's of any value to them. So if he's not of value to them, you know, like if Michael Jackson was still alive, Oprah wouldn't be doing this. One, because the law is different with regard to defamation, but also Michael Jackson would still have some value. 
you know, doing an interview with him or whatever. It, you know, but once you're dead, especially for 10 years, that's gone. There's nothing in it for you. So um, now there's some indication, and, and I think the op- the uh, the Oprah, <laughs> the Michael Jackson fans have a little have been a little bit op- overly optimistic about this. That Oprah, there's this narrative on Twitter that she has backed away from leaving Neverland because a lot of the videos that she had up on her social media accounts regarding leaving Neverland have been uh, deleted or erased or what have you. I'm I'm not necessarily certain that that's what's going on here. I um it could be that's certainly not enough for me to conclude that she has backed away from leaving Neverland. I would need a statement from her saying, you know, I I regret uh, taking part in this or I I now question whether or not this project was credible or something along those lines. Unless and until she makes a public statement to me, getting rid of social media posts is not that uh is not going to do it for me. I mean, that doesn't do it. Now, maybe that's her intention, but I don't know how in the world you you cover your tracks at this point. She did a, a an hour-long special on HBO about this, which is still up on HBO On Demand. So unless that gets, gets taken down, then uh, I, I'm not necessarily buying that, that she is consciously backing away from leaving Neverland. Is she even aware of all these things that have been learned about the film and how absurd uh, its narrative is and how all the clear, obvious, factual inaccuracies there are. I don't know, because she's living in a bubble. I doubt very seriously that she's checking Twitter and saying, well, look, what what is John Ziegler writing about this or somebody else writing about this? Now, interestingly, in, in the U.K., some of the U.K. tabloids have definitely shifted their tone on this. They are now opening, openly questioning the entire essence of the film Leaving Neverland. And they're doing so on a very factual basis. And this week there were two things that we learned which in a rational world should torpedo an enormous portion of the credibility of the film. Now, as I've said many, many times on this issue of child sex abuse, the threshold and the burden of proof are so absurdly high absurdly high that it's almost impossible to overcome them because the the other side will always be able to rationalize some way to you know to make sure that the the square peg fits in the round hole or vice versa it's incredibly frustrating i have likened this to the global warming people it doesn't matter what happens with regard to climate or weather it's irrelevant because it's always consistent with global warming it's the same way with child sex abuse once you've determined that child sex abuse has occurred even without evidence every piece of evidence fits into that no matter what it is well these two pieces of evidence though are difficult to to make work and one deals with wade robson who to me is so obviously lying it's almost not even worth talking about he's the the person who's uh, girlfriend was Michael Jackson's niece, Brandy, who we interviewed on this podcast uh, several weeks ago, which you can check out at freespeechbroadcasting.com. And uh, this week it came to our attention that um, Wade Robson in the movie claims that he was abused by Michael Jackson for several days at leaving Neverland while his family was on vacation in the Grand Canyon. Now, Right off the bat, that sounds a little weird um, that you just leave your young son with Michael Jackson at the Neverland Ranch uh, while you go off as a family to the Grand Canyon. 
not just from a uh, responsibility standpoint, but this is the family event to go to the Grand Canyon. You, you do that once in your life. These people are from Australia. You do that once. You're going to leave your young son at home. He's not going to make the trip. That doesn't make a lot of sense. But that's not the, the nature of the revelation. The nature of the revelation is that Joy Robson, who we talked a lot about last week on the podcast and, and her being part of a, a pro-Michael Jackson fan club way past May of 2013 when Robson went on the Today Show to declare that he was an abuse victim of Michael Jackson and she's liking Facebook posts and now unliking them after we exposed that she's part of these groups. Joy Robson has testified not once but twice over an extended period of time under oath that Wade Robson went with them on that Grand Canyon trip. She has testified under oath twice. The mom, with no incentive to lie about that, none, that Wade Robson, as logic would dictate, went with them on the Grand Canyon trip. So this is something that Wade just simply made up and that his mom is now going along with. Why? Well, because there could be a very large pot of gold at the end of this false allegation rainbow. But that's as strong as that should be in a rational world. That's not as good as what we learned this week about James Safechuck. And this is really interesting on a number of levels because here I am the ultimate skeptic that it's almost impossible to get anybody on the other side of this argument to accept that a story is bullcrap, and yet it's effectively happened just within the last couple of hours, mainly because the director of this movie, Dan Reed, made a colossal mistake, one of many, because he just clearly didn't research his subjects. But here's the essence of this story. James Safechuck, the other accuser of Michael Jackson, in the movie claims very clearly and very matter-of-factly that as part of what he described as his honeymoon period with Michael Jackson, that's how he described it. Like this was them in their, we were having sex all the time uh, stage because we were new young lovers, which doesn't even make any damn sense because he's pre, he's prepubescent at this point. So he doesn't even have theoretically a, 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 a large sex drive. And so I mean, you don't even want to think about that, but that's this is how these are the things that you just have to forget about in order to buy this ridiculous narrative but okay this is what he says this is his claim so we have to take his claim seriously and his claim is that one of the places one of the main places where he was abused consistently during this so-called honeymoon period as a young boy occurred in the train house that michael jackson had constructed at neverland there was a room above the, you know, Michael Jackson, you've probably seen him, you've seen pictures of, of the Neverland Ranch. There's a, there's a train. And of course, there's a, there's a train house, which is like the, the central point of where the train, you know, you get on and off the train, right? And above the train house, there's a room. So it's a two-story building. And James says that that's where Michael Jackson would take him to abuse him. Says it very matter-of-factly. Okay. Well, James says, and it's important to point out, James has said this under oath during his own lawsuit against the Jackson estate, that the abuse against him by Michael Jackson ended in 1992 when he was about 14 years old. All right? 
That's a little old, by the way, considering that a large portion of the narrative here is that Michael Jackson got rid of these guys once they hit puberty. And both Wade and James, I mean, James especially, it didn't, neither of them, there's any indication that they hit puberty late. But James is a, a large guy. And I've seen pictures of him at 15 and 16, and he's much larger than Michael Jackson. So it's not like this. we have got a super late puberty situation here. But So 14 always seemed a little late based upon the narrative they were trying to create that you know Michael Jackson likes you as a, as a prepubescent boy, but as soon as you hit puberty, he's on to some other boy to molest, even though those other boys say nothing happened. But, um, okay, but let's, let's, let's go back to the dates, because dates are always very important in these cases, and, and it's interesting how accusers never like to talk about dates. I found that in, in all these cases. Dates, dates are like kryptonite to these kind of accusations. So his abuse ends in 1992. Well, what's really interesting about this train house is that we have voluminous evidence that the train house wasn't even begun to be constructed until the fall of 1993. And that in all likelihood did not actually exist as a structure until sometime in mid-1994. So now we're at least two years after... James Safechuck claims that his abuse, under oath, his abuse by Michael Jackson has ended. Now, in a rational world, that's a bum, bum, bum. That's flat-out lie, right? That's your whole story is now discredited. However, I'm well aware we don't live in a rational world in these kind of allegations. And, and when this was discovered on Twitter by a, a bunch of very... Uh, <laughs> proficient ja Michael Jackson fans, and once again, the Michael Jackson fans, I got to say, are amazing in so many different ways. But, uh, you know, this was confirmed in numerous ways through photographs, through the construction permits. I mean, this wasn't just some one idle photograph that might have been misidentified. This was as proven as could possibly be. And I, and I was skeptical. I said, look, I, I believe it, and I believe this proves James is lying, which I already pretty much knew he was. But in the world we're living in, this is Alice in Wonderland. Here's what's going to happen. The other side is going to say, well, James just misunderstood or he, he misremembered where he was abused because of all the trauma that he experienced. It's the trauma. It's post-traumatic stress disorder. So he's, he's misremembering where he was abused. That's what I presumed was going to be the response. Well, Dan Reed, apparently, the director of this movie, is too much of a moron to realize that that's the script you're supposed to be working on off of when you are in favor of false allegations of abuse. Because uh, this morning on Twitter, Dan Reed actually responded, much to my shock, much to my shock, Dan Reed actually responded to this issue of, wait a minute, the train station didn't even exist in the form that James said it did until at least two years after he says his abuse ended. It's also important to point out, by the way, that even by the time that, that the train station is, is constructed in a way that is consistent with James and his claims in the movie, Michael Jackson wasn't even living there. And he was married to Lisa Marie Presley. So the, there's so many problems, even if you accept... That somehow, okay, maybe it was 1994 and not 1992, as James said in the movie, 
defend under oath in his lawsuit. So I'm expecting that Dan Reed is either just going to pretend that this doesn't exist or he's going to say that James was never really abused in the train house and he just forgot and he misremembered over the years and it was the trauma that caused him and maybe he imagined he was abused there in a dream or something. That's the way you go because that's the way no one can actually pin you down. Even though it's absurd, that's the way that I expected Dan Reed was going to respond. Either no response at all or he was going to do the BS, you know, faulty memory thing. Instead, Dan Reed tweets, quote, Yeah, there seems to be no doubt about the station date. The date they have wrong is the end of the abuse. Oh, my God. Wow. Okay. All right, Dan Reed. Uh, in a rational, logical world, you have just made it game, set, match for your film. Because now what you're saying is, okay, I'm willing to accept that the train station where James says he was abused didn't exist until 1994-ish. But now he's claiming that James was abused at the train station. And the earliest that that can happen is 1994. Well, there's a massive problem with that. Forgetting the fact that Michael wasn't living there and he's married now. Here's the biggest problem. Now James is at least 16 years old. And he's huge. We have pictures of him. Which is another lie, by the way. James claims that Michael Jackson, in the movie, that Michael Jackson broke up with him and abandoned him. Well, yet there's pictures of James Safechuck at all sorts of Michael Jackson events, holding umbrellas and being his assistant. And, and James Safechuck is huge. He's much larger than Michael Jackson at that age of 16. But here's the bigger problem. The entire narrative of the first half of the film is that Michael Jackson likes these prepubescent boys and gets rid of them once they hit puberty and that James and Wade felt crushed because he broke up with them. That's the essence of the whole movie. The whole movie, that's the essence. Well, now Dan Reed, instead of going with the James's memory is faulty, has acknowledged... That one, James is still lying under oath about when the abuse ended. Still, even after he's come forward as an abuse victim. Because he said under oath, unequivocally, it was 1992. Now we're well into 1994. So that's a problem in the rational world. But the bigger problem is, he's 16 and he's huge. He's way past puberty. The whole narrative of this movie is... Michael Jackson likes prepubescent boys and gets rid of them once they hit, hit puberty. Why and how in the world is James Safechuck still being abused by Michael Jackson, who's now married, not living at Neverland, and somehow in late 1994? That's absurd. It's ridiculous. And that is as much of a smoking gun as you're going to get that the whole movie is a lie. And that Dan Reed didn't do his due diligence. He didn't do his research. There was no vetting here. And Dan Reed has finally cracked under all the pressure that he's under. Because this was an unforced error. I am stunned that he even responded. And I'm stunned that he didn't go with the, the trauma caused James to misremember where he was abused excuse. Abused excuse. Because that you can't fight. 
But this one, no one's going to buy this. Nobody is buying that, oh, yeah, you've just decided in order to salvage the train station story, now you're making James Safechuck 16 years old and huge and being abused by Michael Jackson against his own testimony, both in the movie and under oath. Sorry, not buying. Uh, it's absurd. Now, will this mean anything? I don't know. I, I have been very skeptical all along that this is a battle that can be won from my experiences with the Penn State Joe Paterno Jerry Sandusky case because the deck is stacked against you in a huge way. But there is no question that the facts here are so on the side of Michael Jackson and against leaving Neverland. And because the estate has so much money and because they do have a lawsuit against HBO, although it's not directly about the allegations, I guess they could they could bring those in. And I, and I certainly think they're going to try to get the outtakes from Leaving Neverland, which will, I think, blow apart the whole scam that, that was the movie. So I, I do think that there's a chance that this thing could be blown apart and the narrative could be dramatically altered. I still question unless Oprah changes her mind, whether or not the media, the news media, especially in America, will ever allow that to happen. Because they've invested enough in here uh, that I don't think that they're ever going to change the narrative. Again, unless Oprah changes her mind. If Oprah changes her mind, then it's all over. So <laughs> Dan Reed ought to be very nice to Oprah. That's for sure. Because Oprah, in one snap of a finger, could destroy Dan Reed forever. Uh, and, you know, hell hath no fury like an Oprah scorned. Uh, so that, I think, is the best shot. Oprah is the best shot here because she might still have some incentive to start questioning this movie because she's going to lose some, some fan base over this. How much, I don't know. But people have looked at this. It is overwhelmingly ridiculous. The whole thing is absurd. It's almost like this, and what, this is what fascinates me about this story, it's almost like the, the unstoppable force against an immovable object. And what I mean by that is, you know, if you think of truth as this unstoppable force, which unfortunately it no longer is. We don't live in that world anymore. Look who's president of the United States. But in theory, if truth is an unstoppable force, the truth is so on the side of Michael Jackson and his supporters here. And yet you have this unstoppable force of Oprah Winfrey and sex abuse victims having been sanctified by the news media where they're not going to budge. And those two things are going to collide and are colliding in a huge way. Which side's going to win? I, I think the truth has a shot here, but I'm still betting on the unstoppable force based upon my Penn State Joe Paterno, Jerry Sandusky experience. Although there are different circumstances, it's still basically the same movie. Now, speaking of the Penn State case, I do have an update that um, is actually positive. Very unusual to have a positive update on the uh, Penn State Joe Paterno Jerry Sandusky case. And this was kind of like a birthday present for me. Uh, a long time ago, I told you that there was a very highly respected intellectual contrarian who was writing a book who was going to write a chapter about this whole saga. Essentially saying, I don't know if you're going to say it directly, but then I'm right. Uh, and I was, I was pretty optimistic about this. And then this person disappeared. And given my experience in this horrendous travesty, 
whenever someone shows interest and then disappears, I presume they've flown the coop, they've chickened out, that's it, I'm never going to hear from them again. And I had reason to believe that in this case because I had specifically sent them some very important stuff that they didn't acknowledge receiving. So I had kind of forgotten about this. <clears throat> and it just shows you how cynical I've become uh, <clears throat> in this whole situation. Well, on my birthday, I got an email from this person. Hey, John, <laughs> um, I'm finishing up my book, and I need to clarify a few things. Can you send me this particular document? I'm like, okay, that's cool. And so I sent it to them, and I said, hey, look, did you ever get what I sent you? Because I had done this interview that's not been made public that in a rational world would blow apart the entire narrative of the Penn State Joe Paterno Jerry Sandusky scandal. Uh, and uh, you didn't respond. He said, oh, yes, thank you. I did hear it. Uh, you know, I'm sorry I didn't respond. And the chapter in my book makes it very clear uh, that uh, I, I don't want to quote the person directly, but effectively that uh, I have nailed uh, this particular part of the story that, uh, and, it, and it deals specifically with the date of the Mike McQuarrie episode. There's, I've done an enormous amount of work and I've, I frankly think it's the most important revelation that I've come up with, although I did it belatedly, that the, the number one episode of that entire uh, saga is still totally wrong with regard to dates. I just referenced that dates are like kryptonite. Well, in this particular situation, Mike McQuarrie, the date where he allegedly saw Jerry Sandusky, or he heard, not saw, heard Jerry Sandusky uh, sexually abusing a young boy, is off by six weeks. And then Mike McQuarrie waited about six weeks to go see Joe Paterno, and it wasn't really about Jerry Sandusky. It was about a job that had just opened up the day before that he wanted uh, since he was a lowly graduate assistant for Penn State at the time. He would not get that job, which, of course, blows apart the whole cover-up theory, but he did get it three years later when the same job opened up, which proves, of course, that he wanted that job. He just didn't get it at the time because there was no cover-up. And that's why he went to go see Joe Paterno on February 10th of 2001. It was not February 9th, the night before, when this event occurred that everyone presumed which would give Mike McQuarrie urgency. He went to go see Joe Paterno the next morning. That's not what happened. This actually occurred on December 29th of 2000, which is far more consistent with his testimony and the testimony of his friend, Dr. Dranoff, who he allegedly told about this episode that night, not to mention a whole load of other things that I've proven. So that, that whole narrative is totally different. And I'm told by this person that their book, which is coming out later this year, September, I believe, uh, is going to include a chapter on this particular subject. And if it's anything like this person has described, it should be pretty darn good vindication for me. Whether that'll make any damn difference, I don't know, but it'll make me feel good for about 15 minutes before something happens which will piss me off and disappoint me. <laughs> but I figured that was worth a mention. Uh, also worth a mention is a column that I wrote today about Joe Biden. And uh, speaking of sex abuse allegations that, that have a lot, of, a lot of problems with them, uh, Joe Biden is in the process of getting Me Too'd by a woman by the name of Lucy Flores. Well, oh, God. And uh, this is the, to me, this is the dumbest thing the Democrats have done so far in the 2020 election cycle because Joe Biden is the person who has by far the best chance of defeating Donald Trump in the general election. 
Democrats don't seem to understand that, and they also don't seem to understand that they don't really have a viable plan B that's a slam dunk to beat Trump. But this Lucy Flores is a uh, former assemblywoman from Nevada who claims that uh, several years ago when Joe Biden came to Nevada to campaign for her, that he was inappropriate with her and smelling her hair and giving her an awkward kiss. That's it. She acknowledges nothing criminal happened. Not like he tried to cop a feel or, you know, uh, propositioned her or something like that. No, just Joe Biden being Joe Biden, as everyone has known him for many, many years, with strange, you know, personal boundaries and He's physically affectionate. There are some people who are like that that does not make them bad people. You know, in a different sort of way, Jerry Sandusky was similar to that. And you might even argue in a different sort of way, Michael Jackson was similar to that. But, but here's the thing about uh, the Joe Biden situation. Not only is this absurd to be taking him down over such a minor allegation, which seems right out of what happened to Al Franken. I mean, the Al Franken situation, which, and I've never liked Al Franken, but I wrote about it extensively at the time. That was a complete, total political hit job. I cannot believe that liberals accepted Leanne Tweeden's allegations against him at face value. They got enamored with that photograph, which was a joke. It was an obvious and total joke that she, I believe, was in on and certainly approved of. And I've proven time and time again that she actually went to many years later to an event honoring Al Franken where they joked together, they were photographed together. She, she went across the country to, to go to this event, which honored him for work they did together for the USO. I mean, liberals got totally hoodwinked by Leanne Tweeden, who works for a crap radio station here in Los Angeles. They pretended she was a news anchor. When that story came out, they pretended, oh, Leanne Tweeden radio news anchor in Los Angeles for KABC. The KABC makes it sound like it's somehow ABC News. No, 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 no. KABC is crap. It is a crap radio station no one listens to, and she was not a radio journalist. She was a former nude model who just got that gig because she had a little bit of cachet, and they put her in front of a microphone. That's all it was. And they put her story on their website, unvetted, and it went viral, and liberals fell for it. And because some liberals in, in the Senate and the Democratic Senate saw Franken as a threat in 2020 in the Democratic primary process, they decided to take him out. Well, the same things happened to Joe Biden. And, but this one's worse than Al Franken, although I thought Al Franken could have theoretically been an interesting matchup for Donald Trump because of his... You know, obviously, his entertainment background, his use of comedy, his, his ability to cut down someone like Trump uh, with a funny line. And again, I don't like him politically, but if you're looking for someone to beat Trump, Franken, you could do a lot worse than Al Franken. Well, there, you can do a hell of a lot worse than Joe Biden for reasons that I explain in my column for Mediate, which hopefully at this point you can find at uh, freespeechbroadcasting.com. And I don't know whether or not this alone would bring Joe Biden down, but here's what's going to happen now. And I think this was all part of the plan because Lucy Flores cut a commercial in 2016 for Bernie Sanders. She was, I don't know if she still is, but she was on the board of his political action committee. Uh, now, I've seen something online that she might be a, a Beto O'Rourke 
supporter now, but doesn't matter. <laughs> she's clearly not a Joe Biden supporter. She's clearly politically active. And here's the other thing, and this actually goes back to the Leaving Neverland allegations. One of the things that people always have to be very skeptical of and they're not. In fact, it works in the opposite direction because of the weird rules that we've created here. And that is that when someone's career has gone to shit, they have a much more of an incentive to claim abuse of some kind. One, because it gets them back into the public spotlight. And two, and that not, might not be the case in this situation uh, because of the nature of the abuse, but but abuse is a great excuse that someone can use for why their life went to shit. And that's what Wade Robson and James Safechuck are doing. James Safechuck and Wade Robson had the greatest childhoods in history. They were hanging out with Michael Jackson. They were entertainers. They were celebrities. Now they're just in regular real life. And guess what? Real life sucks. And they've got family problems and dads who committed suicide and money issues. And they're losing out on jobs. And now they make an allegation. Now, in the bizarre media world... We look at that and go, oh, that's evidence of abuse. No, that's evidence that they need to fake abuse because you need an excuse for why your life sucks. Well, uh, this woman's career, which was on the fast track, she or she is a Latina woman who was a Democratic star. It all went to crap. And so now she's got nothing to lose by being an, a, a person that goes up against Joe Biden. Jake Tapper, who I like and I communicate with fairly regularly, apparently on in, in his interview with her today, thanked her for her courage. What courage? No one had heard of her nationally until two days ago, and now she's a hero for everybody who doesn't want Joe Biden to be the nominee. Not to mention her allegation is going to guarantee open up the floodgates now. Because if this is newsworthy, if Joe Biden smelling your hair and giving you an awkward kiss is newsworthy, where is it going to possibly end? It's never going to end until he withdraws or doesn't get in. He's not even technically in the race yet. So Democrats, you know what? If you're going to be this dumb, you're going to get what you deserve, which is going to be six more years of Donald Trump. So good luck with that. And I explain in my column exactly why this is stupid from a political perspective and why Joe Biden, if Democrats had been smart enough to rally around him, would have been uh, someone who almost assuredly would have defeated Donald Trump and maybe defeated Donald Trump uh, rather profoundly. But now, if Biden is not going to be the guy, I don't know who can do it. I really don't. And for the first time, and I said this on the Individual One podcast, for the first time, I'm in a situation where... I uh, am not certain that uh, Donald Trump is not a favorite to win re-election. It is right around 50-50. And that's actually being somewhat optimistic that maybe Biden isn't totally toast yet. If, if I'm convinced, and if and when I become convinced that Biden is in fact totally toast, that might go up to 60% real fast for Donald Trump's re-election, which is, is just unbelievable. You know, it's, it's just flat out ridiculous that the Democrats could be this dumb because Bernie Sanders is not going to beat Donald Trump, folks. Let's be clear about that. He plays right into his hands because he's a socialist. He's an open socialist. So that ain't going to happen unless the economy totally falls apart. And I don't see anybody else that does that much better in the key states 
uh, Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Florida, which is where this election is going to be decided. Those four states are all that matter. It ain't going to be Kamala Harris. I can guarantee you that. She's not going to play in Pennsylvania. Probably not in Florida. You ever been to the middle of Pennsylvania like I have many times? Ain't no way Kamala Harris is playing. You know who ain't going to play there also? Pete uh, Buttigieg, the uh, South Bend mayor who is getting all sorts of media coverage. I like Pete Buttigieg. He seems very smart. He's got a great presence of him. I'm getting an Obama 2007 vibe. Uh, But guess what? Uh, The thing that's going to make liberals love him, the fact that he's gay and he was in the military, they love that combination for some reason. You know, but although some liberals I'm, I'm hearing saying, well, he's gay, but not like gay, gay. He doesn't because he doesn't come off as gay. So therefore, he doesn't really count. What? Because he's not effeminate. That doesn't count that. he. What? You people have lost your fucking minds, which is why we're going to get six more years of Trump, it looks like. But here's the thing about Buttigieg. Um, number one, the states I just mentioned, being gay is not going to help. It's going to hurt. Central Pennsylvania might as well be Alabama. He ain't winning Pennsylvania. I'm sorry. A gay man is not going to win Pennsylvania against Donald Trump. And have you ever been to the goddamn panhandle of, of Florida? It might as well be Alabama as well. So uh, I'm sorry. Uh, being gay ain't going ain't gonna to work. It is not going to work in Pennsylvania or Florida. So you're giving up Pennsylvania and Florida right there. So now what, what's your path? What's your path? Well, tell me what your path is. Okay, I'll give you Wisconsin. I'll give you Michigan. But... You can't do it without Florida or Pennsylvania. You can't. And so tell me where you get those other states. And with Trump, I guarantee you, you know, any other candidate, a gay man might get away with it because a large part of the, part of the population might not even realize he's gay. They might just think he's single, right? Because, you know, you could, you could hide that through a general election because the media would protect you. Trump would make this front and center every single day. He would be, by the, by the middle of the campaign, he would have a nickname for Pete. He would call him Pete takes it up the butt a gig. That's what he would be doing. That's that's Donald Trump. You know he would. You know that's what Trump would be doing. So every single person would know that Buttigieg is gay. And I'm sorry, you cannot win the Electoral College. And I'm not suggesting this is right. I don't give a damn if he's gay or not. It doesn't matter to me. But I'm telling you, we are not there as a country, especially with a guy who's the mayor of South Bend, Indiana, at, what, 37 years old, and not against Donald Trump. Donald Trump will slice and dice him. Yes, he might even win the popular vote because he'd run up huge margins in New York and California and Illinois, places like that, but not the Electoral College, and that's how this is going to be decided. And it ain't going to be Elizabeth Warren. And it ain't going to be Cory Booker. So who else you got? Who else you got? Tell me who it is. I, I talked with my good friend, Democratic Congressman John Yarmouth yesterday, who I'm not going to speak for him, but there ain't anything I'm saying he disagrees with. All right? I'll just say that. And I'm like, John, tell me who is it? Who can do this? If it's not going to be Biden, who can do it? I don't see the answer. I, I see no answer to this. I do not see how, uh, and, you know, clearly the economy could go to crap. Uh, and, you know, Trump's approval ratings are pathetic, 41, 42. 
generally that's not where you would need to be for re-election. But when you're president, the other person has to get through that presidential threshold to beat you. Reagan did that against Jimmy Carter. Who the hell's going to do that if not Joe Biden? Joe Biden already went through that threshold. He's been voted twice by those four states, by the way, that I've mentioned that is being key in 2020 as vice president of the United States. He's already passed the threshold. Who else you got that's going to pass that threshold? I don't see it. And uh, you know what? I'm starting to feel like if Democrats aren't smart enough to see see that, they're going to get what they deserve. Unfortunately, the country's going to probably suffer because of it. We're going to suffer one way or the other. We're either going to get six more years of a lunatic as president with no accountability in those last four years, or we're going to get some nut job socialist who's not qualified for the job. Fan-fucking-tastic. On that happy note, that'll do it for this edition of the World According to Zig podcast. Yay! Hope you enjoy the final four basketball games. <laughs> or the well, oh god. <laughs> um, but uh, and make sure you check out the individual one podcast where I go in greater detail on the Joe Biden issue and other issues related to what's going on with uh, President Trump. As always, I ask only two things of you. Number one, please make sure you share this via social media, Twitter, Facebook word of mouth, what have you. And uh, number two, do yourself a favor. And if you're one of those people who sleeps and when you sleep, you use sheets, please pay attention to this important message. My name is John Ziegler. Our website is freespeechbroadcasting.com. Coffee? Oh, thanks. How did you sleep? Ugh, like a baby. I don't want to get out of bed, ever. These sheets are mm, incredibly soft. What did you say they're called again? Performance bedding by Sheiks. <laughs> performance bedding? <laughs> yeah. They're made from super high-tech performance fabric. They're incredibly breathable, so you're not waking up at night throwing covers off and then an hour later throwing them back on. Huh. No wonder I slept so good. Since I started using Sheiks, I sleep like a baby. No more sweaty nights for me. No? Well. <laughs> well, I like them because they're soft. They feel like, mm, silk. Performance fabric, huh? Maybe we should... Oh, I don't know. Try them out again. <laughs> <laughs> Comfort and performance for better sleep. That's Sheiks. S-H-E-E-X. Sheiks. Try Sheiks for 30 nights risk-free. Go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com, promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com, 1212.